Jordan is on best. Harper's on middle. Play together, they believe. Um, it cares Levert. It's cold. Levert. Back in. Speed. Oh, he's a one-man wrecking crew. Holiday. Shot clock down to six. Finds one. Welcome to another edition of the Indie Cornrows podcast. I'm your host, Mark Schindler. As always, before we get started, if you haven't already, please be sure to rate and review us over on Apple Podcasts. It always helps us out. I like hearing from you, uh, getting to know uh, getting to know you individually. I, of course, you know, reach out on me on Indie Cornrows or uh, on Twitter. My DMs are always open as well. Um, you know, coming at you with another episode of Pacers After Dark. Uh, after a 108-105 loss to the Charlotte Hornets, uh, really psyched to be joined by somebody who actually it's the first time we ever talked face to face, but I feel like you're probably one of the people I, I, uh, ha- I you know, I'm in your mentions here. My mentions are probably about equally uh, on Twitter. Uh, Div Bonsali, uh, also known as Stat Center on Twitter. You are, I believe you're, you're in, uh, you're in Charlotte area, right? Or at least in, uh, in North Carolina. I am in North Carolina. I'm in Chapel Hill about two hours. From oh, Charlotte. okay. All right. Yeah. So yeah, you're obviously you're uh, primarily Hornets, but you just have awesome NBA thoughts all around. So I encourage anyone, if you don't follow him already, be sure to, um, but thanks for joining, man. How are you doing? Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Uh, doing good. I was, uh, I was having a pretty good day anyway. And then Charlotte somehow pulls out the unexpected win tonight. So that was a nice little surprise. It's hard. It's hard not to be, you know, kind of partial to Charlotte, man. So I actually, uh, they were my number one league pass team last year. And they're they're up there this year. Obviously, I was really psyched. Uh, I mean, you know all the guys for Busby. You've been on the pod before. I I mean, I love Busby. Is probably my favorite pod that I listen to. Um, and so getting you know Lamelo going to Charlotte was just awesome. I was like so psyched for that when he fell in the draft. I remember watching draft night and him falling. I was like, oh, this is great. Like I can't wait to hear what Brian, Richie, and Spencer think. And um, you know, seeing this team, obviously the greatest color scheme in pro sports as far as I'm concerned with the the court. I mean, it's just, it's perfection. You know, this team should be on national television 20 times a year as far as I'm concerned. Um, But my, uh, so my connection with with Charlotte though, I have family that lives in Charlotte, but my favorite NBA player all time is Alonzo Mourning. So. Oh, nice. Yeah. Oh, I love Zo. Zo is so good. I think he's some like, he's one of the guys that's interesting to me because you obviously, you know, this is a Pacers podcast, but you know what? Screw it. We'll talk about Alonzo Mourning. Um, it's what Pacers After Dark is for, you know. Yeah. Um, it, it's funny because I think if, uh, you know, most people think of Alonzo Mourning in in, in, uh, in Miami or with yeah. Georgetown. Uh, but if you were to take away the fact that he was drafted after Shaq, you know, if he was drafted number one like the year after or in a different year, I think people look at him very differently. Yeah. I think he's somebody who would have been the best player in just about – probably 80% of draft classes, but you get drafted behind Shaq. It, it's tough. Uh, and obviously the end of his career kind of tails off due to injury and everything, but yeah. just a fun player, man. And I love Charlotte. So I, I'm, I'm excited to kind of dive in and, and talk warrants with you. So how did you get like started um, with basketball and uh, just Charlotte in general? So uh, I got to start off with a confession, which is I haven't actually been a Hornets fan for that long. Oh uh, yeah. So I grew up in New York and uh, as a Knicks fan. Oh, and, um, so not an Alonzo Morning fan then? Shit, <laughs> not an Alonzo Morning fan. Maybe a fan of Jeff Van Gundy holding on to Alonzo Morning, yeah, uh, more than the player itself. Um, but yeah, so I, I grew up a Knicks fan and uh, was a Knicks fan uh, after college, and then at some point, 
uh, I just got so tired of rooting for a team owned by James Dolan. Yeah. And, you know, if you've got a, uh, a terrible coach or a terrible general manager, you figure they're going to be gone in a few years anyway. Um, Not Dolan. <laughs> the owner could yeah. outlive you, right? Like it, it, they're going to be around forever. And so I said, I, you know, between the like terrible job of managing the team, the incompetent people you brought in, and then you throw around terms like sexual allegations and lawsuits and everything else that was going on in the garden. Um, I just finally said, you know what, I'd, I'd rather not be a fan of any team than be a fan of this team. And I just became kind of a general NBA fan for about five years. And then um, I moved here uh, six years ago to North Carolina and we went to a couple of Hornets games and I just got hooked, you know, loved, yeah. loved everything about the experience. Uh, obviously at that time loved Kemba as well. Um, but just really liked the team. Um, thought it was a bunch of good guys and, uh, you know, they've, they've never been very good while I've been a fan, but they've also never really bottomed out and they've always been kind of interesting in one way or another to watch. And I, I agree with you. Like last year, I thought it was a really good league pass year for them with Devonte Graham taking a step forward. And, um, and then this year has been, uh, been even better. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And, um, it's kind of interesting too. Like PJ Washington, one of my favorite players in the league. Um, I remember last year. Uh, that's when I fell in love with with, with watching Charlotte because, um, you know, I, I was watching. It was I, I want to say it was the first game against the Bulls um, when PJ Washington just went like I think he went like five of seven from downtown or something like that. Just ridiculous, you know, in like the first yeah. half. And he was a guy who was not billed as a shooter at all coming out of the draft, and he was just he was on he shot well from three the entire year, but like the first two or three weeks he was like the guy that everyone picked up in fantasy because he was shooting that well yeah and uh, like just watching that run like I, I think they they only finished with what like 24 wins last year maybe not even that many like that, yeah. um, but it felt like they were in like every game yeah. and so this year you can kind of see them taking that step uh, obviously adding Gordon Hayward everyone getting a year older and they're just a competitive team they're good um, they're yeah. not at that level yet of being a real playoff team at least you know from from my estimations and seeing yeah. them so far but um, they're definitely a center away as much as I love Bismack Biombo. Uh, <laughs> he still can't catch a basketball. So if we yeah. are, we're not quite to a, to the contention stage there, but it's funny. I mean, I, I think a lot of Hornets fans, we are with Bismack Biombo the way like a soccer mom will be with her <laughs> junior high kid. Um, because yeah. like, it's like, Oh my God, Bismack caught the ball two times in a row. That's so great. <laughs> yeah, you know, we're, We get so excited about anything that he does on offense um, because he's starting from such, uh, such a low level uh, to begin with. You know, he's solid on defense. Um, there are guys that he matches up really well with. Uh, Sabonis is not one of them. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, but, you know, he can, he can do a decent job uh, protecting the rim. He's a decent rebounder. Um, but yeah, I mean, in the whole time he's been in the league, his hands have gone from an F minus to an F plus. And, and I think that's about as good as it's ever going to get. So just having Cody Zeller be healthy again. Um, and it looks like Biombo just moved out of the rotation completely and they'll yeah. just have PJ Washington play backup center for now. I'm totally fine with that. I think, uh, you know, Zeller for years has been um, a really underrated part of the success of Hornets lineups that worked. Uh, Zeller plus Kemba always was better than Kemba without Zeller. Um, and, and I think Zeller, you know, being one of the best screeners in the game, um, he keeps the ball moving. He doesn't let it stick and he's solid on defense. He's not great, but he's solid. Um, you know, he, he's not a high ceiling player, but, but he's a high floor player and, you know, really helps us out. So 
if uh, if the Hornets can figure out the 18 to 20 minutes that he's not on the court and figure out how they're going to get some sort of inside protection during that time, they'll be in a much better spot than they've been. Yeah, definitely. And it's kind of funny because I, uh, I've always thought, you know, especially looking at Cody Zeller, um, he's just a good player. Like, like you yeah. mentioned, like he's, uh, I, I would say, I don't want to say he's like the quintessential, like average player. He's like probably slightly above average. Um, he's got a lot of qualities similar to Domas. He's probably a better defender than Domas is because Domas is not a good defender for the most part. Um, but he just does things that are positive, you know, and I think it's a lot of the nuanced things that it's, it's harder for general fans to pick up on. But mm-hmm. I always hate when he's like the butt end of jokes or whatever, because, yeah, I mean, fourth pick in retrospect, uh, part of that part of the issue was he had a lot of injuries that I felt like sapped yeah. his athleticism at the beginning of his yep. career because he was totally super good. bouncy when he came out. Um, but no, he's been a good player. Um, and, and you can just see the difference that it makes having him there, even only playing 25 minutes. Um, it was big tonight. You could see the the lanes that he was able to open up for guys. And most importantly, the shooting uh, off of screens um, that he was able to open up to was was killer. You know, yeah. um, before yeah. we even talk about that, I just want to talk about the zone defense, because I I, I, I think it, it's interesting the way that that things are shifting more towards zone defense. And I think sometimes that gets thrown out a little much. Same thing with switching. Like it's starting to become the new switching a little bit, mm-hmm. like the way that um, the first time it gets noticed in a game, everyone like jumps on it and goes crazy. Right. Um, yeah. And I think it's more about like having a purpose when you do it is important. Like you can't just switch for the sake of switching. You can't just go zone for the sake of going into zone. Yeah. Um, I believe the last time I checked um, Charlotte was pretty healthily the number one team in terms of percentage of possessions running zone. Yep. And you can see why, I mean, PJ at the five, um, He's what well, I think he's only six seven. Uh, yeah. I, I remember he was listed six eight in the draft, and that is uh, that is definitely in shoes. Um, yeah. But you know they just have so much athleticism and length that you can actually run a zone pretty effectively, and we see that against the Pacers too. I mean it's tough with um, Domas didn't even. I mean he played well today. Eight of sixteen is not even that good for him though. I mean he got to the foul line a couple times, but um, for a team that really thrives on getting to the rim and trying to get open shots. Uh, the Pacers could not get open shots because of how well um, Charlotte can sag into the paint and then run back out with, with the length and ability to contest. Yeah. Um, so, I, I mean, that was something I was looking in uh, coming into the game and, and, and coming into this one as well. I mean, the Pacers go 11 for 35. A lot of that is that length. I mean, you see like Miles Turner. Um, some people were bitching and saying that he was record scratching. I didn't think so. It's just when you have somebody who's actually quick enough to c- contest you and get out on you. And uh, he's not somebody who's going to take super. Um, if guys are right up on him, he's not going to take a three and he, he shouldn't, frankly, but um, yeah. it makes it a lot harder for him to do things offensively like that. And you see, even with Malcolm Brogdon, they, they, they can go under him on screens, but still get on top of him quick enough. Um, I, I think, you know, LaMelo ball uh, is part of the zone is what I really like. Like, I think obviously we knew LaMelo ball coming in was going to be so good as a passer. Um, He's been even better than I thought he was going to be coming in, but defensively is like, um, there were just like four or five possessions that I could, if I went back through, I could pick out even more, but um, his intensity on defense, a is, is fantastic. And then B, I mean, his ability to sniff out a ball in the passing lane is just ridiculous. His hands are so good and his hand-eye coordination, really damn good. Like, That zone defense is going to be good for years if that core stays together. I'm going to be really curious to see how much zone they play the rest of this year with Zeller back. Um, mm-hmm. Because 
to be honest, I think um, I, I don't think the plan going into the year was to play nearly as much zone as they have. Yeah. You know, and, and you can look at teams like when I think of zone teams or teams that will employ the zone, I think of like Miami and Toronto and they're doing it from a position of strength, right? They're, yeah. They've got really big physical bodies. They've got guys who have really high defensive IQ. And so they think of zone as we can put this in to mix things up once in a while, um, protect some of our guards and, and confuse the offense, right? We're, we're going to be smarter than they are when we mix it up that way. For the Hornets, I think it was much more of a reactive thing. I think it was, oh crap, we just lost one of only two guys in our rotation who's over six foot eight. And the other one is Bismack Biombo. Like, you know, and we can't play him 25, 30 minutes a game. So what are we going to do here? And so we said, uh, I think the Hornets just said, well, we've got a bunch of like-minded, uh, similar sized wings between uh, PJ, Miles Bridges, um, and, uh, and Hayward and Ball. Uh, so let's go ahead and have any three of them on the court at the same time. And we'd be able to play a decent zone at that point. I think it also worked out well for Lamelo because, frankly, he's a lot better off ball right now than he is on ball. Um, you know, I, I was just hearing recently a story about uh, his coach in Australia said that when he first showed up there, he had never done a defensive slide drill. In- <laughs> yeah. Like literally had never done yeah. it. Right? Um, because he just had such a crazy, unusual path to to this point. And so he's, he's a complete basketball savant in a lot of ways, but he has no clue what to do in guarding a guy one-on-one, yeah. you know, in isolation. Um, but off-ball, like you said, he uses his length. He's got great anticipation for steals. Um, he's even shown some rim protection, actually. He'll, he'll come in from the weak side at, at the right time. So in a zone, um, it, it's so much more read and react within your area, and he doesn't have to think as much about, okay, what do I need to do against this guy? What are his tendencies? You know, it just sort of flows a little bit more. And Hayward is really high IQ and can, can sort of fit into anything. Um, now, long-term, I don't know that it's going to work quite as well because you're still often going to have bridges and ball on, out there. And both of them have a tendency to be pretty spacey. Um, yeah, yeah, Miles you know, is definitely a... I mean, bridges he's is, gotten a little bit better, but it's still, it's, uh, it's a little painful how much he gets I mean, back Bridges is just infuriating. I mean, I, I can't remember who was in the, in the first game two days ago oh, it was doug mcdermott i can yeah. doug mcdermott shot one of five from three and finished with 28 points still and yeah. i can tell you most of those were back cutting miles bridges yeah. so yeah yeah i mean miles bridges turned doug mcdermott into Dwayne wade ghost cutting him into the abyss man yeah and, and i took a screenshot of like just before that that first back cut uh for the layup the positioning the bridges had just what like it, it made no sense in any sort of defensive scheme whatsoever right and Bridges is like that, like half the time. He, he just is totally out of position. His effort is kind of hot and cold. Um, so one of two things is going to happen. Either they're going to keep using the zone and just try to be as average as possible. Try to just protect the paint, let teams take three-pointers. Um, or at some point, they're going to look and say, well, you know what? We're giving, them, giving up not only three-pointers, but the most corner three-pointers in the league. And that's not really sustainable over the long term. We've gotten kind of lucky with that so far. And at some point, teams are going to really start taking advantage of that. We've got to be able to spread out a little bit more. And we've got to, if not go fully man, at least introduce some man principles into that Mm -hmm. as well. So I suspect, I I mean, Borrego hasn't given much of an indication of being a zone coach per se. Um, So I think he just kind of wanted to see how it worked when he needed it. I suspect we're going to see that percentage of possessions with zone start to come down. 
um, probably still employ it once in a while, depending on the personnel, but I, I actually hope it's not as often as it has been. Yeah, no, I, I think that makes sense too. I mean, um, I don't know if you follow PD Webb on Twitter, but he's one of the very anti-zone guys. I, I've yeah. talked to him about that multiple times and it makes sense too. I mean, it uh, it's an interesting conundrum. Like you have a very, very young team and especially when you're playing, when you're playing zone, like all of those guys are extremely new. Um, so is it good to let them try and get better at being zone in game? Or do you want to throw them into the fire and say, Hey, we're going to try man, because we, that's what we have to be good at. Yep. Um, it's, it's interesting to look at that, you know, and especially too. I mean, like you mentioned, part of it's been propped up by um, some positive shooting luck for, uh, for Charlotte's defense. But I mean, they've been a top, they were top 12 yesterday. Um, so I'm not sure how long that is going to remain. And it'll probably be around there after tonight, but uh regardless um it's a good start that way yeah. another question i have in, in terms of like i feel like there are just so many uh, we need to have some kind of swap happen between the pacers and hornets because we have opposite problems the pacers have too many combo guards and bigs and then there's no forwards on the on the roster other than tj warren um you guys have all of the forwards in the eastern conference it feels like i feel like there, there should be some sort of deal in here somewhere um, we'll happily take PJ Washington for like a second round pick or something. If you want to make that happen, but, um, <laughs> I would PJ Washington would literally just be perfect on this team, but that's the, that's the thing about PJ Washington. He'd be perfect on like every single team because every team needs somebody who can play the four and, uh, won't kill you on defense and can actually do things on offense. But, you know, um, yeah. tell that's all the teams that passed on him in the draft. Right. Um, yep. that's right. Yeah. But, uh, so both the Martin brothers are out of the rotation now. Um, which is is different considering how the year it started. Yeah. It has been nice seeing Malik Monk a little bit, though. I know his thing is uh, his issue has definitely been consistency, uh, both on and off the court. Um, but I actually thought he attacks the paint better than anybody on 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 Charlotte's roster. Um, like especially in the first game against the Pacers, I thought he could have played thirty minutes. Um, like in the in the minutes he did play, he was the one guy who really could collapse the defense and. You totally saw it too. Um, did not really get that much run tonight either, but he's looking positive. And I, I don't remember who, I think it might've been Richie that tweeted out the, uh, or no, it was Spencer who tweeted out the video um, in the game of, he, he like did that crossover and like brought the ball high before he whipped it cross court. Like he's getting some of that confidence back, which is nice yeah. to see, but where are you kind of at on Malik and, and uh, how he's coming back in the rotation? You know, so coming out of Kentucky, um, I mean, his, his one year at Kentucky, he was a very good three-point shooter. He mm -hmm. was, I, I want to say, a 92% free throw shooter. Oh, yeah. I mean, the, ridiculous. The indicators could not have been more green in terms of his outside shooting potential, right? Um, just sort of everything looked like it was there. And the question was, could he develop on defense and could he develop the rest of his offensive game to go with it? And now he's been in the league for a couple of years and the problems he's had are exactly the opposite of what everybody expected. Um, he just hasn't been able to hit a shot for the past few years from, from deep. Um, but what's happened in the meantime is he's gotten much stronger and, you know, young guys all, always come back from summers and say, Oh, I put on 15 pounds. Of muscle. <laughs> yeah. The Dwight but Howard effect, one, except one, the reverse. Yeah. Who cares? Right. And number two, they lose a lot of it during the course of the year because of cardio and running up and down the court. And then it doesn't end up really helping them anyway. Malik is actually one of the rare cases where I think he truly did put on real strength. And that combined with his quickness and, and his agility and his hops meant he was, uh, by the end of last year, he was getting to the rim at will whenever he wanted to. Yeah. Um, 
and he's still an acrobatic finisher. Sometimes he'll he'll make it way more acrobatic than it needs to be. Um, but you know, you could see it really starting to develop in terms of him being able to really slash. Um, and then he was getting some slash and kick opportunities as well. So things were really developing nicely there. Then the season gets cut short. And, uh, and right before that, he gets suspended as well. Um, and, and so, you know, he had sort of issues going on with his personal life, misses nine months, um, ends up with a personal reasons absence when this season starts. So he was just kind of like all of that progress was wiped away. Yeah. But I think a couple of times in the past week, especially tonight, we're starting to see that Malik from last year coming back. Uh, we're starting to see um, pushing the ball with pace um, into transition, um, looking for guys early if it's there and if not attacking the rim. And then, I mean, tonight, two of four from, from three-point range. To me, the four is more important than the two. It's yeah. the fact that he's willing to take them repeatedly um, because I think if he just gets into the rhythm of doing that, instead of thinking about it too much, it's going to eventually start going, going back in for him. I mean, he's, he's still got a good looking stroke. Um, you know, they, I, I think a lot of it has just been mental, uh, plus, you know, minor physical issues as well. So if he can get back to being a 35% plus, uh, shooter from distance on some volume, um, and then teams have to respect that. I mean, I was surprised actually the Pacers like really came out on him. A couple of times today which like last year was not happening at all everybody's going under everything with him um guarding him at the 18 foot line you know so um just if he starts having that mentality of hey guys are challenging me i can go ahead and challenge them to the rim um that's going to make a world of difference to the team because like i said there's not really anybody else on this team who attacks the rim the same way you know hayward is a smart driver but he'll just as often pull up for the 14 footer um, as he will to, to go all the way to the cup and bridges looks like he should be that driver, but he, his handles just, it's gotten it. better, but yeah, his handle yeah. is still just not there. Yeah. And, and Devante has a terrific handle, um, but he can't finish at the rim and teams have realized that now. So, um, you know, if, if someone on this team is going to be the, the type of person who can, you know, get, uh, get to the rim five times in, in a half, it's going to be Malik. Um, but he's got to earn, earn that time to be able to do that. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, so it's actually really funny though, like you mentioned with the Pacers closing out on him. So not to, not to, not to blow your bubble, but, uh, or pop your bubble, I should say, uh, they have been, it's really been frustrating because I know they, uh, I mean, Nate Bjorkman is like insane about watching film and uh, keeping up on what's going on so that he can game plan for everything. And that's been highly reported, but it's frustrating because you watch them make closeouts on guys who you're just like, why on earth? Like Josh Green uh, for the Mavericks, notorious non-shooter, has never been a shooter in his life. Um, the reason he fell so far in the draft, because he cannot shoot. And they closed out on him every single time he got the ball when they played Dallas. They closed out on Stanley Johnson against the Raptors. They closed out on DeAndre Bembry against the Raptors. Like, they close out on everyone. And part of it's like they want to play a really aggressive brand of basketball. But at the same time, there's like this 5% of like, okay, well, this is where you want to not – you're being aggressive by not being aggressive in yeah. some circumstances. Like you want to force people to, to fuck up and make mistakes because that's not what they're good at doing. Like, yeah. you know, if you if you give them an opportunity to do something positive, then, yeah, it's probably not going to go well. So I'm interested to see how that works out throughout the course of the season. It's yeah. happened for long enough where I think it's going to be a thing. Um, but regardless, it's, it's funny that you mentioned that. Well, and it's interesting that, that you say that because, you know, if you think ahead to the playoffs, 
playoff defense in a lot of ways is figuring out which guy you're going to pick on exactly, and leaving them alone or making them do uncomfortable things, right? So that you can put your focus on the other three or four guys in the way that you want to, um, right? And so being able to identify who's the person who is the least threatening in their space on the court right now, right? And, and being able to react to that and be less aggressive around that is so, so important for a team like the Pacers, who's obviously going to be in the playoffs, has the aspirations to do more than you've done in the past couple of years. Like part of that is going to be be ruthless on defense. Like, you know, don't, don't guard everybody the same. Don't guard the entire uh, court the same. Like be much more strategic about that. And it, it's interesting actually, because Bjorken comes from Toronto, which is like notorious the, the past few years for pulling up all kinds of different flavors of abusing guys who, who can't get it done on offense, right? Um, so yeah, it's, it's kind of interesting that he hasn't fully put that in place yet. Yeah, it's it's uh, it's funny because he uh, so he has pulled out everything. I mean, in the in the game against Golden State, they ran a box and one for like yeah. half the game. They've been pulling out a ton of stuff like that, which is you know very opposite of what the Pacers have been my entire lifetime. Um, right. You know, it feels like they've run the exact same defense since I was born in 1997. Like, I mean, Dan Burke was the defensive coordinator since 1999, so pretty much yeah. they have been running the same stuff, uh, but. Yeah, like it just feels very much so like right now uh, on both sides a little bit more on defense than on offense, but they feel very much like a uh, work harder, not smarter team sometimes not to disparage them. Like, I, I think they still have a lot of kinks to iron out, but um, you get that like just a little bit. There's like, well, you know, if you just cut out this one thing, like I get what you're doing. I understand why you're doing it. But if you just didn't sell out for that one thing, you would notice there's like, you know, well, there's this really easy thing you could do instead. So, yeah. yeah. I, uh, I, I definitely concur with that, but I want to hand it over to you for a second. What are your thoughts kind of uh, not even just off this game, but on, on the Pacers in general, um, you know, what, what did you kind of take away from them over the past two games and, and what you've seen so far from them this season? So, um, so anybody who doesn't believe me on this can go back on my, my Twitter feed. Um, <laughs> we'll pull the, the receipts. Yes. <laughs> I had the Pacers uh, preseason top five in my league pass rankings. Um uh, and part of it was the change in coach. And I wanted to see how that would play out on, on the court, but also just, I just think this is such a, um, such a professional team that plays together most of the time. And um, like Sabonis's growth has been incredible. Um, I uh, loved for you guys, hated for us, the land pickup, uh, yeah. obviously he suffered the injury last year, but um, you know, it's great that he's back now. And I think he brings, he's just funky, man. Like he, he just plays a little offbeat, a little yeah. off kilter all the time. Um, and I, I think a well-organized team actually needs a little bit of that. Um, you know, the, the little bit of randomness and, and chaos that he brings, but he's also just a really smooth player, um, you know, can shoot it from deep as well. Um, and, and then I, uh, I forget what grade I gave for the Oladipo deal, but I, I graded it really highly. Obviously, this is before we knew what was going on with Karis LeVert, but, mm -hmm. um, you know, he'll be hopefully well sometime soon and, and be able to come back in. But, you know, I think um, Oladipo in his last year, certainly from the outside, it, it didn't look like he wanted to be there long term to be able to get back LeVert, who I think was a little bit overextended at times in New Jersey, but now as part of this sort of ensemble cast where he doesn't have to do that much and can just sort of take advantage of weak side rotations and, and two-on-one situations and so on. 
mean, I think he's going to be fantastic at that. And I think he'll also become more disciplined on defense because everybody who comes to Indiana becomes more disciplined on defense. Um, I, I, I don't know what you guys did with TJ Warren, um, but he. he oh, I know. I, I wrote an article about that last year because I remember just going back and watching some of the film from him playing in, in Phoenix compared yeah. to Indiana is like it's night and day. Yep. Yeah. Uh, so it, it's, you know, so much of it just comes down to um, the system and the framework that's put into place and who else you have around you. And, you know, Indiana doesn't necessarily have the um, the most elite number one guy. But if you look at the number three, four, five, six guys, when everyone is healthy, um, you know, you've got depth, you've got flexibility there, you've got size as well. Um, you know, so I, I'm, I'm really impressed with, uh, with what Indiana is, is doing. I think the thing that has shocked me um, most of all this year is that the things I've been saying for years that I believe Miles Turner will do, he seems to finally be doing. Like, I, I don't know what is going on with him, but I mean, I, I've seen, uh, I guess this was the fourth uh, or fifth full Pacers game I've seen this year. And then I've seen bits of other games as well. I definitely haven't seen them every game, but between the games I've seen and the advanced stats, I mean, his impact this year is just ridiculous on defense. And, you know, two years ago, I, I thought he was like a top five defender in the league. Uh, I, I felt like he fell off last year um, when I saw him and, and based on the numbers. Um, but this year, I mean, like, I don't know, is this the coaching change or, or what's yeah, going on? Yeah, that's a, it's a good question, man. I mean, I think it's, it's interesting too, because he finished top five in DPOY in, in 18, 19. Yeah. Um, and then obviously last year, yeah, he did. Uh, I, I do think he took a step back a little bit partially because um, his role was just so much less defined. Um, and it seems like a lot of that went down to the, between him and the coaching staff too. Um, you know, I, I think a lot of, everything with with how murky it was with what he was doing on offense or what they wanted him to do on offense um, kind of conglomerated with with defense too and it was just weird how they had things set up with the defense last year like again the defense finished I think top 10 in the league uh, almost top five it, it was not that good I can promise you that it was not actually that good it looked looked better it worked out numbers wise just because miles was so good and even then like he was just in a different spot. He was forced into a, a lot of islands last year, and he's a good island defender, but at the same time, like his – what makes him good is, A, he's awesome playing in the pick and roll, and, B, he's great at coming over from weak side stuff. Yeah. But he was being forced to um, to do a lot of things out in, in the perimeter because Domas just – that is not him. He cannot yeah. do that. Yeah. Um, so, you know, the way that they've played him now uh, – using Domas more in terms of ball pressure, which I still have a little bit of questions about sometimes. Like that's one of the things that's, you know, a little bit of uh, smarter, not harder. Like they'll have him ball pressure Andre Drummond out of the top of the key. Like that happened in the Cavs game. Like you don't have to go out all the way on Andre Drummond. I can promise you that much. Yeah. Um, but, you know, that's allowed uh, Miles to do a lot more in terms of staying at home on the rim yeah. and having drivers funnel into him because that's what he's awesome at. Um, and, and the thing that has really set him apart this year for me, I kind of want to write about it, is uh, he reminds me of I, – I've, I've, I've made this analogy with Nikola Jokic before. So if, if you've never watched I, – I watched a lot of uh, History Channel and National Geographic growing up, so I always saw documentaries on bears and shit. Um, him and Nikola Jokic – might have the quickest hands of uh six eleven seven footer type guys in the league. Yeah. 
Um, and that's what's been different for him this year because he, he didn't used to be like that. He's like, it's very much so like watching a grizzly bear hunt salmon, like just like <laughs> darting. It's like it's his, uh, his like hand out. And it doesn't always result in a steal, but he's really good at deterring drivers and just forcing them to pick up their handler. Um, think more you know I, I think that's what's really been good about him obviously he's able to get blocks but he's not like Hassan Whiteside block chasing yeah. um, he's just yeah. great at forcing guys to be uncomfortable and um, yeah so that's been that's been really awesome for him the biggest thing though is just offensively he's such a different player like he's not second guessing himself anymore he just uh, he's really picked up his processing speed yeah. and is able to read the court a lot better and part of that's been on the coaching staff but I think a lot of that's just personally him um, a lot got levied on Nate McMillan by by the fan base and, and people um, nationally last year. And I didn't think it was entirely fair because I think a lot of it was just it was Miles. You know, he's just yeah. not comfortable where he was at. And he seems to be now. And I'm, I'm really hopeful it's here to stay. He's had, I think, five 20 point games in the last eight games. He's just really putting it together and is yeah. uh, looking really damn good. He's uh He's no longer – I always hated when people would say that the idea of Miles Turner is better than the actual Miles right. Turner because it was very dismissive of him as a player. Um, but I, I just think that there's no case for that now. Like, he's yeah. he's he's here and he's damn good. He's yeah. not even 25 yet, too. This is his sixth year in the league. He's not even 25. And and that, that gets to the point I was just thinking about, which is these guys who very early on you can see this this concept of this idealized version of them – that would be amazing. Mm -hmm. And then people start wondering, well, like, why isn't there linear progression towards that? Like, why, is, why isn't it every single year just moving closer and closer to it? To me, like, you know, Miles Turner has always been one of those guys. I think the quintessential guy like that is Aaron Gordon, yeah. where, I mean, since, you know, Gordon came into the league very, very young, by second year, you could say, oh, yeah, that guy with that body and that skill set, like, look at what he could become. And then people are disappointed that, like, it's been a very uneven path to get there. But He's still significantly improved from where he was. He's been in a really difficult situation, uh, you know, team-wise, team context-wise, uh, in terms of the fact that they've got so many other guys in the front court there. But you can still see the progression happening. And it still wouldn't surprise me if next year the light bulb suddenly came on, that it was the combination of the right coach and the right scheme and, and things just kind of clicking for him. And he could suddenly take a jump to another level. And I feel like that's exactly what Turner has done this year, you know, is that the glimpses that we've seen um, on offense are now being actualized way more often. And he just seems to have a clarity in his mind of what he is trying to do. And, um, and defensively, it's like, you know, you, you take the best of cuts of Turner in the past and now it's just like, that's all he is. He, he's yeah. just the best of all the time. Yeah, no, it's uh, it's pretty awesome to see just because a he's a great dude off the court. So it's awesome to see him just like really kind of put things together. And it's also crazy to say, I mean, he is the longest tenured pacer and he's barely older than I am. So it's uh, I always think that's a kind of remarkable thing um, in looking at the game, though, because I just realized I've hardly even talked about the game. Um, I just felt like I don't know what your thoughts were. I thought tonight it really just came down to I thought both teams played well. Um but uh, you could obviously nitpick small things, but it just came down to the the Hornets could hit their open threes. The Pacers could not. I mean, Justin Holiday goes two of eight from three tonight. Miles was two of seven. Malcolm was three of ten. Um, but I also thought the Hornets did a lot better job on defense tonight and closing out on shooters, uh, just making it harder. Um, overall, though, I mean, I just thought it was a good game. Yeah. Uh, that's that's my that's my genuine analysis today. It was yeah. a good game. I totally agree. And, and the Hornets just were able to actually hit their shots. 
I actually think both teams played better tonight than they did two nights ago. Um, I would agree with that. Yeah, it was a much less sloppy game uh, yeah. on both sides. Um, and again, you know, I get paid for analysis, but I, I will just say that's that's my genuine analysis. Like, I just think I mean, that it's very hard to well, nitpick this game. I mean, sometimes that's really all it comes down to, right? You look at the um, you look at the three guys in the backcourt. I'm sort of putting aside ball for a minute here, but the three sort of pure guards, uh, Graham, Rozier, and Monk, four of nine from three, five of eight, and two of four. And Graham has been in a funk since like the middle part of last year. Yeah. Um, you know, it, it, he's um, I tweeted a stat recently that he was up to uh, 75 games or 80 games, I think, played since the beginning of last season. And in the first 40 of those, he was shooting like 38% from three. And since then, he's been shooting 31%. So it's like, it's not just a little bit of a dip. He's just kind of fallen off as teams have gotten more, more used to him. And, um, and it seems like, and tonight he was shooting with much more confidence than he has been. Um, you know, he was stepping into the pull-ups, uh, Rozier got it back to him on a cross court one time and, and he hit one. Um, you know, I, I just thought he looked much more confident um, than he has recently. And I mean, Rozier has just been, since the beginning of last year, Rozier has been one of the three or four best catch and shoot guys in the entire league. It's, it's just been ridiculous. I don't know where it's come from, um, but it's, uh, you know, I'll, I'll happily take it. So, um, but yeah, the, I think the big ones were Graham and, and Monk. And when those two guys combined to hit six of 13, this team looks completely different. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And I think what's interesting with, with Terry and it kind of feeds into what I, um, I want to talk about next, but with Terry, I mean, a lot of it is in Boston, he was because he's six foot one, six foot two. Um, he's characterized as being a point guard and that is not him. He's not a high enough level of a passer to be a point guard other than that, you know, 20 game stretch he had in Boston. Even then he wasn't, uh, wasn't exactly lighting the world on fire. Um, you know, at least from a playmaking standpoint. And I think you just look at him in, in a much more actualized role, um, being able to do things off guard. Cause I mean, off ball, cause his usage was so high in Boston, even, you know, coming off the bench when he did um, yeah. and, and seeing Charlotte move him the way that he did. I mean, like he would, I would argue he's probably a positive trade asset, if not a neutral trade asset now with his, his contract. And more importantly, he's just been good. Like, yeah. Uh, he, he's a good player. His defense, I, I have to like watch his defense a little more closely, but I, I don't, I think it's at least neutral in watching him. Um, well, at least when he's on like size guys, cause he's still not yeah. that big, but, yeah. um, yeah, the shooting is just ridiculous. Like I, rem yeah. as soon as I saw that was the real killer for, for Indy was they let up uh, probably four or five offensive rebounds down the stretch that I, it felt like every single one of them ended up in a catch and shoot three. Uh, for the Hornets that went down. And I, as soon as I see Terry catch one, I'm like, all right, it's going in uh, yeah. because he, he, you, just, you just know. I mean, he's so smooth off the catch. Yeah, the, the Hornets are uh, generally terrible on the defensive glass, but surprisingly good on the offensive glass. And I think, again, it comes down to having all these 6'6", six, 6'7", six, 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 guys kind of flying around the court a little bit and, and um, in Borrego's offense, you know, somebody will often come free and when that happens, the thing I'm always looking for is Rozier quickly sprinting to the spots that he wants to be on. And there are like three or four spots that he loves, that quick kick out from the offensive rebound, and he's always ready to shoot uh, on that. Gets a ton of good catch and shoot opportunities from that. So, um, you know, I think that's sort of a bread and butter uh, play when, when the Hornets can get offensive rebounds off of there. What, you know, I would say that Rozier is... I don't know if he's a positive trade asset at this point, but he's a tradable asset. Mm. You know, he's, he's certainly not going to kill you. He's got one year left on his contract after this one. Um, it's a flat contract. And, um, 
you know, if he is shooting at this level, I think a playoff caliber team can look at it and say, well, you know, he can be an elite shooter um, either as a second guard or off the bench for us. He can give us 25 to 30 minutes a game. Um, there are some matchups that he can take on defense, like you said. But generally speaking, he's he's okay on defense, probably slightly below average. Mm-hmm. He's a very good rebounder for his size, um, you know, and obviously uh, amazing to catch and shoot. So, you know, if you just look at him in that framework, um, I think there are teams that could be interested in him. But, you know, to your point, I'm not sure the Hornets want to trade him at this point. Yeah. Like, I think the Hornets are, you know, he's still in the same age range as everybody else on this team pretty much. Um, so let's just kind of keep riding with him. It lets LaMelo come in in a more gradual way. Um, a lot of Hornets fans are clamoring for LaMelo to start already, but I'm fine with sort of the approach that Borrego is taking right now. You know, he comes off the bench. He still gets 25, 28 minutes a game. Tonight he got 30 um, but he gets to do it first against backups and, and in a sort of easier situation, he always gets to play with either Graham or Monk out there. You know, I, I think it's a much better situation for a rookie to, to be able to develop. So um, I, I did not expect to be as uh, reasonably happy about Terry Rozier as I can. <laughs> hey, I think that that describes most people, man. I, uh, mm-hmm. I remember, I mean, uh, part of it was I just I I haven't liked a lot of uh, a lot of Charlotte's uh, front office decisions um, over the last four or five years, and, and that was one of them. Obviously, I mean the fact that they got Terry back was something. You know, it's better to get a contract back than no contract. But um, no, I mean he's worked out, and and that's actually a random question I have: Is he the reason that PJ is growing out the mutton chops now? Because that was not a thing last year, at least not to my knowledge. And I noticed that immediately this year. I was like, shit, he's doing the exact same thing Terry does with his facial hair. And I don't know anybody else in the league who does that. So I feel like it's got to be uh, playing in somehow. This team goes all over the place in terms of facial hair. Uh, I'm looking forward to seeing what LaMelo does uh, yeah. longer term. Uh, Miles has already had like three or four different looks in his two plus years here. Um, is, uh, same thing with Monk as well. Yeah, I don't know. That that might be the inspiration there. Because that's what I thought. I was that you know because I think Terry's had that almost his entire time in the league, um, or at least the last year in Boston he did for sure. But yeah, yeah. no, it, it's it's interesting how that stuff works out. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that leads me to my next point. I, what are, what are your thoughts on Aaron Holiday? You know, what did you think a of how he played tonight, but just kind of in general because he's uh, kind of similar to that Terry Rozier mold. I don't. He's obviously not quite the handle. Um, might actually be a little bit better of a passer. It just kind of depends on on the game sometimes. Yeah. Um, but he, he's somebody who's been uh, interesting in the discourse around the Pacers uh, currently. Um, actually, only he went, it was 0-5 from the field tonight, but actually he, this was probably a better game for him than the last game. Yeah. So um, I knew nothing about him before last season. Um, mm-hmm. You know, he was a complete unknown to me. Um, I mean, I knew him a little bit. He came out, I think, in 18. Um, So, like, I knew him a little bit the first year, but not much at all. Um, I thought he was really impressive last year. To your point, like, I didn't expect that level of ability to make passes as he seemed to be showing um, last year. Um, So I was was pretty impressed. Um, But I'm wondering what his role is if everybody's healthy Um, because, you know, it's been a long time since, since Lamb has been in the lineup. Holiday is a more mature player now than he was at that time with Brogdon and Lamb and everybody else. And especially 
if and when Levert comes back, um, you know, is Holiday a 15 minute a night guy? Is there a role for him to be more than that? I, because I haven't necessarily seen, and, and even watching the game tonight, I didn't necessarily see um, an enormous amount of upside, but mm. also with a guy who's, what is he, 23, 24, I mean, it, sometimes it's just a matter of opportunity. So I, I guess I see him as a nice player, but not necessarily one with um, with a ton more to go. But I wonder if that's just a matter of sort of the situation he's been in so far. Yeah, it's um, it's actually really, uh, it's really kind of uh, ironic how things work out with him. Or maybe not even ironic. I just didn't want to say funny again because I feel like I said funny stop thousand times already but you know in looking at him he's had a really rough start to the year like you mentioned i mean he was really solid last year especially in the bubble was showing a lot of improvement because he's been mostly a, a kind of microwave scorer off the bench yeah. um that's been his role and you know when he uh if is so basically if his shot's not going it's like okay well then we don't want aaron out there necessarily uh his defense hasn't been as good as i thought it it, it could be this year um but it's been difficult because you look at him and it, like you're talking about with the role it's important to to note that because he came in uh lowest usage of his career currently um was playing with the starting lineup once tj warren went down and was just there to essentially catch and shoot and that was really it occasionally yeah. he would be driving um off of closeouts but for the most part just a catch and shoot guy and he's a player who really needs the ball in his hands to get rhythm and so tonight was i want to say I'm going to go back and check the numbers tomorrow when, when they're posted on cleaning the glass, but I'm almost positive that tonight was the first time we saw a more than minute long stretch of Aaron actually running the offense. So a lot of times on the bench, he's going to play with TJ McConnell and then he doesn't have the ball in his hands. Right. And um, I mean, it's just, I think something that we really lose as, as fans and I, I've gotten a little bit more into the draft. I've been a little bit, uh, well, not a little bit. I've been mostly out of it for like the last month since the season really started up, but and really diving into that and understanding that, you know, looking at how uh, un understanding how prospects come into the league and um, what they are as players is really important to determining what they will be as players. Like Aaron was a guy who controlled the offense when he was at UCLA, even when Lonzo Ball was there. And uh, I mean, part of that's because Lonzo Ball is not a point guard, which I can say that freely here because no Lonzo stands will come find me and hunt me down. But uh, <laughs> I mean, like, it's just a, a fact of the matter. Like, I, I, I kind of want to write on it, too. Like, he just plays better when he can actually run things. Um, and, and you saw that tonight. Like he, again, he went 0 5. He missed a couple bunnies, but they were good shots. Um, and he was actually generating looks for everyone else because when he's just forced into a, you know, more of a play finisher role, he's not good at creating for others because mm -hmm. he's more, uh, I don't think he, I, I wouldn't characterize him as a selfish player, but that's just the thing. You know, if you're a guy who's accustomed to having the ball in your hand for, for yeah. 18 years, and then you're told, okay, we'll go finish this play. You're going to think every single time I get the ball, I have to finish the play. Otherwise, I'm not going to get an opportunity to do it again. Um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm really hopeful that he, uh, A, will finish more of his shots, but B, uh, can flash some more of that passing that he did tonight because he it was a positive running that lineup. Um, and I really liked that. And I love TJ McConnell. He's a good player. But I think um, the ideal version of the Pacers has Aaron Holiday as a more idealized backup scoring guard than, uh, than TJ McConnell having to play 25 minutes. Yeah. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. I mean, I, you know, I think McConnell is, a, we know exactly who McConnell is, right. Yeah. Uh, and, and it's very clear strengths and, and clear weaknesses. He can help get other guys involved, but he does it in pretty specific TJ McConnell type ways. Like there, yes. there isn't really sort of another level for him to get to there. 
And so if there's someone else who can come in and either be a microwave scorer or be a microwave combo guy who can make quick decisions to either shoot or, or you know, pass to the, a guy who can make a play, um, I mean, I think that's, that's really valuable. And also that's, like, that's a little bit of a different skill set than Brogdon has, right? Um, like Brogdon is just, he's really deliberate and um, a like, super smart player, um, but he, he can't sort of take over a game in that same way that somebody who can kind of get a couple of flurry of shots going yeah. might be able to. So, you know, I, I just think it's important for good teams to have uh, multiple different ways that they can attack you. And it sounds like Holiday might be able to provide something that isn't necessarily there on or in the rest of the rotation at this point. Yeah, definitely. I think that's how I view it as well. And it's funny that you, you mentioned that about Malcolm. I've always described him as he's like the six, five version of Kawhi. I mean, they play basketball, like they're computers. Yes. Um, and yeah. I, not in a bad way. Like it's beautiful to watch them play basketball. Cause it's just so precise, but like yeah. very much so like it's uh like it, it, him going to university of Virginia just makes almost too much sense right. in terms of the yeah. way he plays basketball is the way to put it. But uh, yeah, sure. yeah, man. Uh, the last thing I want to hit too, go Vitaze was really good tonight. I was, I was very happy seeing, I, I, I uh, uh, coined it as Goga bonus uh, because I couldn't think <laughs> I of anything that. else in the moment, but that was the first time that Goga Batazzi and, and Domas have, uh, have ever played in, in the same lineup together. Wow. Uh, I believe. And it, it was actually kind of positive. They just bullied people on the glass and they, they made things happen in the paint, but I really like Goga. I'm excited for him moving forward because he's finally getting minutes. He was not getting minutes at all to start the year. And there was kind of an uproar among Pacers writers and um, hope, you know, I, I like to think that Nate Bjorkman listens to uh, all of our podcasts and, and reads our, our writing. And he decided, okay, maybe I should play Goga now, but uh, yeah, it's happening. And it, it was, it was generally positive in the minutes that he played. Yeah, he's, uh, I, I think he's a really interesting player. It, so um, what I heard about him before the draft is that he was one of the best pick and roll role men of his age anywhere in the world. Um, that it was rare that you'd find somebody, um, I, I guess he was what, 20 when he was drafted or 19 when he was drafted, mm. um, who already had such good instincts for rolling to the basket and, and finishing. Um, Watching him last year uh, and and the early part of this year, like I mean, obviously he is going to block a ton of shots while he's in there. Uh, he's pretty foul happy, but like honestly, I don't even mind that for young bigs. I think if um, if a young big is aggressive and and ends up fouling as a result of it, you know, so be it. But I, I I'm really I find it really interesting that he and Sabonis haven't played together before. I didn't know that until I saw your tweet because. Um, like one of the things you can do with young big men is kind of put them in situations that challenge them to do stuff they don't usually do and just kind of like see how they react, see what their instincts are like and see if they've got sort of the capacity to quickly pick it up. Um, like there's no question in my mind that Goga is a rotation big in the NBA. Like I would be shocked if he wasn't that, right? So I think the question is sort of like how far up can he go from there um oh no know. no no these these questions are too big we can't we can't think that far no i'm just kidding uh exactly i've i've been thinking of the same thing too like um you know you notice like he's he he does things that pop already like he's um he's already at the level of being a rotation big and shows that he can be more yeah. um so it's it's very much so a conundrum like well you you start two centers how do you get him the playing time you know it's uh it's right. it's a conundrum yeah 
Yeah. So, I mean, uh, yeah, I, I wonder if he progresses in uh, at sort of a typical rate. So he's slowly, steadily making the march towards being a, you know, fourth or fifth best player on a on a good team. You know, let, let's say that that's sort of the trajectory you see. Um, I, I'm curious how the front office would look at that. Like, do you look at that and say, oh, well, cool. That means we can get rid of Miles and get real trade value for him because he's still too young. Um, or do you look at Sabonis that way and say, you know, Sabonis might be at the peak of his value right at, right at the moment. Like, you know, let, let's get him out. Or do you just say like, cool, we got three bigs and they're all relatively young and skilled and they bring different things to the table. Like we'll get, you know, 48 minutes of, uh, of varied stuff from our bigs. And, you know, there's such an emphasis on skilled bigs right now in the league anyway, Mm -hmm. that, um, like, I I think there's some real appeal in saying our third big, rather than being, you know, JaVale McGee or or somebody else who does, like, literally one thing, uh, I don't know why I picked on JaVale McGee there, somebody lower than JaVale McGee. (laughs) What if if we had three guys who all can do multiple things together, and we just kind of figure out how they fit, and... Um, and, you know, kind of game plan based on, uh, based on the opponent. So I, I don't know. I'd, I'd be curious to see how that works out. Yeah. Um, I, honestly, I mean, I think we're going to see how it works out. Um, especially with the trade happening with Vic, I don't anticipate that another trade is going to happen this year, but I also didn't think Vic was going to get traded, you know, until the trade deadline. I, I, I wasn't under the impression he was going to be on the team, uh, next year, but, um, the way that that worked out was like, just, I remember I actually laid down to take a nap for like the first time in months and my phone just started going off within five minutes of, of, uh, of talking myself in. And then I looked and I'm like, Oh wow, James Harden just got traded. And then Vic's name pops up and I'm like, Whoa, okay. What are we doing here now? And I was like, all right, time. I have to clear the rest of my day and I have to go on a podcast and do like two other ones and write something too. So it's like that kind of day, but, um, no, you make a really great point. Like I, I go back and forth on that a lot especially you know looking at and domas and miles this year uh, if you parse out some of the stuff on uh on on off uh like looking at their net rating together it's about the same as last year um and it, you can look and say okay well they're doing a lot of things they're more actualized in their roles both of them are offensively and defensively they make a lot more sense together but at the end of the day when they play boston who feasibly is going to be you know a similar core with Brown Tatum, uh, Marcus Smart, maybe um, Kemba, you know, that's, that's a whole other question with him too, with what that's going to look like moving forward with his injury. Um, and obviously he's back now, but again, that's, it does not sound like an injury that is going to go away. Yeah. Um, but, you know, you look at a team like that, that's always going to have four guys who can shoot, pass and score um, shoot, pass and defend, I should say, or, or shoot, pass. I'm, I'm thinking of, I'm missing the third piece, but you, you get my point. Like, uh, you look at a team like the Bucks. Uh, they have ne- this team has really struggled with the Bucks the last couple of years. Um, you know, you, even like Charlotte in the next couple of years, I think will be a legit playoff team in the East uh, as they continue to grow. Um, again, and I'm not trying to put too much expectations on the team, but like you add somebody like Evan Mobley in the offseason, maybe, or you add just somebody who is you know a capable big, and this team yeah. is, you know, they're winning 40 plus games. Like that's a good team. Um, I just don't know how they're able to consistently beat uh, a team. You know, you could see it happening. Maybe you win a series in the regular season, you know, uh, winning three or four games against Boston. But how do you do it in in the playoffs? If you don't have, like, even if you have Karras and TJ, 
you who is defending Jason Tatum? Who is right. defending uh, who's defending the Kawhis, PGs, LeBrons of the world? I mean, we saw Harrison Barnes dropped 30 points on this team a couple of a couple of weeks ago, and he's actually been really good this year. I think he's made some strides, and he's always been a solid player. The contract yeah. just weighs him down. Um, but that's the point. I mean, that in a, in a, in a game decided by the guys who are six, seven to six, nine, that can handle the ball. How do you beat those teams? If you don't have that kind of player or people who can consistently guard that player. But then I also think too, if Domas and miles is just good enough. I mean, Deandre Jordan's not stopping them, you know? Um, So I don't know. It's a, it's a really interesting dilemma. And I, I don't think either of us have the answer to it, but part of me really hopes that they're able to find a way to do things differently because again, you know, a, a team like Indiana, you're not going to have that star player and you have to do things differently. Otherwise, yep. you know, I, I can't stand the small market teams that try and run themselves like they're like they are the nets or somebody else like that. Like, cool. Okay. You're running a heliocentric offense, but you don't have the guys to do it. So why, why the hell does it matter? You know, Carl yep. Anthony Towns is fantastic, but um, you can take the best shot profile in the world that you want, but, you know, if you don't have the guys, if you don't have the horses to pull the carriage, then find a different means of transportation, you know? Yeah. You know, the, um, for me as a Hornets fan, for the last few years, the two teams that I kind of look at as role models for what I hope the Charlotte front office is like in the future uh, from, from the past few years are the Jazz and the Pacers. And because mm-hmm. they're both small market teams, and there's small market teams who understand that they're going to have to build differently, uh, kind of to the point that you were saying, right? That um, the most important thing is get talent that, number one, is likely to want to be there. And number two, has a good chance of being able to develop together, right? And, um, and they're not going to be sort of getting in each other's ways and so on. The pieces can fit reasonably well there. And when you have an opportunity to upgrade, you go ahead and you do that, um, you know, Utah did going out and getting Conley, getting, going out and getting Boyan, um, what Indy did getting TJ and, and now getting Karras. But you do that in a really strategic way. You know, you get guys who have time left on their contract. You get guys who are at positions of value, um, who are in reasonable contracts, right? And so once you get to that point, you might look at something like, well, we've got Turner and Sabonis, and that's two bigs in a league that's going totally away from two bigs. And there's two ways that you can handle that. One is to say, okay, let's trade Turner for one of those other kinds of player archetypes that we don't have right now. But like, who's giving up a six, eight guy who's good, right? Exactly. Like, right. <laughs> like, right yeah, no, no team is like putting that out on the shop window, right? Everyone is hoarding every single one of those guys that they can, they can possibly get. So, so you've got to draft your way into one of those, which is really difficult to do. Um, or you've got to sort of luck into it. Like the Hornets did with Gordon Hayward and, frankly, overpaid for him, but that was their one chance to sort of get somebody who yeah. they felt could help LaMelo progress and help the other guys progress. Um, or the other thing you do is you say, you know what, while everyone else is zigging, we're going to zag and we're going to do the best version of us that we possibly can. And let's see if you can match up with that. And it's possible that that puts a second round ceiling on your team. Like it might be that, you know, by the second round of the playoffs, you get down to the last eight teams and most of them have a creator who's big enough that it's going to cause problems. Um, and, and you just like kind of hope that, you know, you, your strengths outweigh their strengths, but they probably won't. Right. And, and that's, that's kind of that. But like you said, like there's always this tantalizing thing, I think for a lot of teams to say, 
oh, what if we made this big splash and got exactly the kind of guy that everyone else is trying to go? And then you end up just kind of stuck in mediocrity because you got a guy who's not as good a basketball player. You know, like I think ultimately more than position or archetype, like are you good at crunch time basketball and playoff basketball is is the more important question, right? Yeah. And you want as many of those guys as you can get. And then if you can, you know, get it to be more complimentary, like that's great. But to me, that's a nice to have after you've got the talent base that you want and you've got sort of the fit going there. Yeah. Yeah, definitely, man. I uh I don't know. It's interesting to think about. Like I uh, I was talking to Andrew Kelly, who writes for Petrie Hoops. I'm sure you've seen it. I mean, he's awesome on Twitter. Yeah. Um, you know, we talked about how this team kind of has the makings a little bit of being like that 14, 15 Hawks team. You know, if they're able to stay together for a couple of mm-hmm. years, they could build that consistency. Yep. And theoretically, you could look at it and say, okay, well, that as good as that starting five was, you could squint and say, okay, this one could be even better. You know, there's yep. there's a chance that you have maybe Sabonis or Brogdon uh, is is playing at their peak level is, is higher than – and Millsap was probably a 25, 20 player that year. Um, and you you say, okay, well, maybe one of our guys can be a little bit more than that. And I, I think there's something to that. You know, you can make a uh, some kind of acquisition during the year if you're like, okay, well, this team is the team that's going to go. Um, maybe you make an acquisition and say, all right, we're going to go for it. And I, I think you look at the teams from, from the 90s that the Pacers had with Reggie – um, and they were very much like that similar ilk. Like Reggie was a really, really good player, but his kind of archetype, like you're not, that's not a title, uh, immediate title contender team, just because uh, as, as good as he was, you know, that's, you, you had to, everything was built to get him, him in, into his ideal shot forms. And yeah. even then, you know, you still had to work so much for those. Um, yeah. but the idea is, you know, if you can keep this group together and they play well, and we foster some kind of, uh, you know, culture and chemistry, then it just works at some point, you know, and you get lucky. And uh, it's, I don't know, I, I get frustrated because some people are like, oh, that's a losing mentality. Or like, you know, you're not trying to win. I'm like, but you can't just go out and try and win. It's not like, it's not that simple. Like, like I remember getting a little bit frustrated when people were, uh, they, they looked at the Gordon Hayward deal and everyone I think there's an issue with, sorry, also, I apologize if I'm keeping you super long, but I'm just really enjoying this conversation. But I think you look at, there's a really granular thinking with basketball and, and, and looking at the way that front offices do things. And I think there's a tendency to um, say, okay, well, that contract's bad. This is bad. That's bad. That's, there's this, there's that. And I think the context is so important. And like you mentioned with Gordon Hayward, what time, is Charlotte ever getting a player like that without overcompensating? You know, yeah. I, I think you have an opportunity, a guy who wants to go there after, you know, he, uh, they extended the qualifying offer, I think 2015 uh, before when Hayward was up then. Um, and he talked about wanting to go there. And well, it's not a great deal that that last year could be bad, but at the same time, it is better to have the deal than to not have the deal, frankly. Right. You can find ways to get off of a deal, but if you get the first two or three years of value, I mean, it's worth it. Just having that kind of player who is quality is important. And I think it's the same thing with Detroit too. Like you look at Detroit, I think they got really hounded for how their off season went. Um, I think a lot of people are kind of uh, changing their tune on that now. Um, Even though they're the bottom of the East, they've been one of the more competitive teams in the East. I think they've only lost by double digits once this year. Um, but obviously, I mean, the, the gamble for Jeremy Grant, nobody really saw coming. Um, I certainly did not. <laughs> um, but 
I mean, there's teams cannot do things the exact same way as, as, as like golden state, the way golden state did things or the way that the Lakers do things. It's just, it's different. So I think we really hit on like, it's just important to um, be creative when you're a smaller market. Yeah. I, you know, it's funny. Um, The lesson that some people seem to have gotten out of golden state's dynasty was you should build the team just like that. And it's like, yeah, good luck. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, Go draft four Hall of Famers, see what happens, right? Like, right, exactly. Like, I mean, to me, the lesson of Golden State is when you have the opportunity to get talent that wants to be there, go and get it, right? Yeah. And figure out the rest later. Um, but, you know, I mean, there are some times that you can look at something and say, boy, that's a huge overpay and that's going to cripple you. It's a max contract, it's 40 million, whatever it might be. But putting aside those sorts of situations, um, the cap is flexible enough that you can get your way out of a dangerous situation, but there's so much value in just having, uh, and, and like I'm seeing this right now with, with LaMelo from day one of the very short training camp, LaMelo benefited from Gordon Hayward being there. Um, you know, I remember in the first or second game of the year, LaMelo went careening towards the rim, totally out of control um, and ended up throwing the ball um it, it didn't go out of bounds but it almost went out of bounds and it was yeah. a shot clock violation and Hayward went up to him right afterwards and was like you know you could see that what he was saying was like calm down there like take your time slow down your pace then rev up right switch your pace up a little bit because that's something that Hayward is amazing at he's mm-hmm. terrific so he can show him exactly how to do that um I, I just think it makes such a difference for young players to have somebody who can not only guide them in terms of what they say, but they can look at them while they're on the bench and say, Oh yeah, I can, I can actually pick up some things right here from this. And I think it just builds a completely different mentality. You know, when Goga is on the bench, he's watching two big dudes do very skilled stuff, obviously in very, very different ways. I'll be really interested to see two, three, four years down the line, how his projection changes and his skill set changes because he's watching that and he's going up against it in practice and, and so on and so forth, you know? So I, I, I'm, I, I totally agree with you that I think small market teams have to approach it differently. And I don't think it's defeatist to say, look, there's only one team that's going to win a title every year. And if that's your only barometer of success, like you're going to be heartily disappointed as a fan most of the time. Yeah. Right. Um, it, there's got to be something more to it than that, or at least something while you're working towards that. Like we, we've got to care about the steps leading up to that as well. And, um, and, and I think yeah, Indiana and Utah are great examples of sort of you get to step three and you don't look at step seven. You look at how do we get to step four? Right. What's the pathway to there? And you're keeping your eye on step five during that. And if at some point everything breaks exactly right and one of the guys becomes an all NBA first team level guy instead of a all-star level guy, and you can now start thinking about conference championships, like awesome, that's, that's fantastic. Um, you're not precluding that, but you're just saying, we're not going to try to sort of cut corners and think that we can microwave our way to that the way that like a Brooklyn can, you know, and, and no, like no offense at them. Like they did exactly what a big market team should do. Right. Yeah. They, they got the, the situation and environment exactly right for stars to choose them, which is what they should do. Like that's not going to happen in Indiana and that's not going to happen. Charlotte. Exactly. Exactly. I think that's the main takeaway, man. Um, well, Div, this was, this was awesome, dude. We will certainly have to do this again sometime uh, when Charlotte and, and Indy cross up or even just whenever. Um, but where can people find you at? You know, what, anything 
cool going on in your life that you want people to know about? Any any chance to uh, to plug anything? Floor is yours. Uh, the only thing I've got to plug is I'm on Twitter at Stat Center. I've got a uh, I've got a project that I'm just starting to work on, but I can't actually talk about it quite yet. Okay. Um, but I'm hoping over the next few months I'm gonna start working on a little bit of a historical NBA project um, that I think is a little unique. I don't think anybody else has done something quite like it. So, um, but you can learn more about that and all my thoughts on the Hornets and the Pacers and the NBA in general at Stat Center. Awesome. Well, uh, to everyone listening, of course, go follow Div over there. Uh, I'll have links to him uh, in the description down below. Uh, thank you again for coming on, man. To everyone listening, thank you for listening. And of course, rate and review the show and just have a good rest of your day. Go Pacers.